Hello and welcome to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity, recorded at White City Place. I'm Ellie Stuhler. In 1908, the Olympic Games came to London for the first of three times and were held here in White City. Then there were 22 countries participating. Today, the Summer Olympics have more than 200, and for the Winter Games, which begin in Pyeongchang this week, there are more than 90. The Olympic Games are the largest sporting event in the world and one of the most known brands, presenting big challenges for the branding agencies tasked with giving each Games a unique identity. Up for discussion on this episode, designing for the Olympics. The ambition is never to create something that's weird, it's to create something that feels different and feels relevant and feels radical in the space of today. So what marks the success of a good brand for the Games? And frankly, what makes a good brand full stop? We discuss why fetishizing nostalgia distracts us from creativity and why it's wrong to judge a brand by its logo and to judge a logo too quickly. Let's meet our two conversationalists. I'm Chris Moody. I'm the Chief Design Officer of Wolfollins London. I'm James Hurst. I'm the Principal of Design Studio. Chris has been at Wolf Olin's for 15 years and now leads the design team at its London office. He's worked with major clients such as Skype, Sony Ericsson, The Red Campaign and Royal Mail. In 2012, Wolf Olin's designed the vibrant identity for the London Olympic Games. James has been with Design Studio since 2014 and became principal last year. The practice has worked with clients like Airbnb, Twitter and Deliveroo and recently designed a new identity for British Premier League football. James specializes in digital design. It was weird actually because I was on the BBC World News talking about Beijing Olympics. And that's a really difficult one to talk about. One, because I wasn't actually really heavily involved in the London Olympics when we worked here. But two, because I think it's one of those really difficult questions to answer of, do you like the new logo? <laughs> they gave me kind of five minutes. I, w- I was sat down and they, they said, what do you think of this? I'm like, well, I'm not sure, because I think you have to see it in context to be able to understand it. And that was one of the things that I think about the 2012 stuff, that none of it really truly made sense until you saw it out in the world. And with all these branding projects that revolve around an event that's happening like that sometime in the future it's really difficult to understand how it's going to work until you see it well i think it's also like the antithesis really to a lot of what branding is so branding is often permanent timeless beacons that people will associate and build equity in over time and things like the olympics they have the timeless rings and then each event has this other identifier And it's kind of interesting thinking about how you measure the value or the success of it and whether or not you like it or don't like it. Because I think that you have to use a slightly different framework in your your head to assess it. Yeah, and and one of those things that's going to affect it is how the public interacts with it. And that relationship, I think, changes over time. I think as they grow to kind of understand what the games is going to play out like, how they kind of work out their understanding of what the the destination is like. Because I think one of the really big things for me about the Olympic Games is it allows you to put a place on a map mm-hmm. and be really clear about what that place stands for. Or in some cases, and I think it's true of London, get people to reinterpret or reimagine what that place is actually like. 
and, and Beijing should be one of those actually it should be one of those where I don't really understand and, and have a grasp of the culture in Beijing and I hope that it can kind of give me something yeah well I think yeah I think the work that um, Wolf Hollins did with London was absolutely fantastic at actually capturing a slightly punkier energetic aesthetic which if we think about what's going on with Pyeongchang at the moment sort of feels to me like that Pyeongchang identity has been designed through sort of semiotic analysis they try to bend, like blend so much stuff into the mark that it kind of could be for anything anywhere yeah. and I think that, that in movement in motion it seems a little bit more successful but as an isolated mark, it doesn't have that sort of, oh, right, this is what career is about. Yeah. You know, Korean design is absolutely fantastic. And it's so evocative of sort of a sense of craft and a sense of people. And um, there's something a little bit too West Coast, California-y about what is being projected to the rest of the world. Mm. I agree. I, I think in, in application, there's some interesting things as to how it plays out. There's something something kind of weird about and sort of otherworldly about how fragile it is and how mm. slim it is. I always kind of balk a little bit when you're presented with something that explains how an identity works and it starts with the, the semiotics, like you say. It starts with kind of like, oh, this is meant to represent this. And if it needs that explanation, it's probably not working as hard as it can do. I'm intrigued as to how it will kind of play out on screen as well because I think one of the, the things that is blatantly obvious now is that we have to make sure that anything to do with Olympic sports... Beyond that, it, it has to go through the, the screen as, as in as crisp way as possible. It has to kind of feel really kind of meaningful on screen and in movement. But there are pieces of that that I think will work really brilliantly well on screen, and some of it will just kind of disappear and fade off into the background. Yeah, someone's definitely built a companion brand to the Olympic rings. Mm. Um, what was the process like when the team were working on the 2012 Olympics? How heavily involved did the IOC get in trying to steer that? Because it is interesting mm. that every event does feel quite distinctive and, yeah. and unique. I think because every event is associated with a different group of people with different aims and trying to do different things, you know, I wasn't heavily involved in the team, but as far as I knew from the team, they, they had a relatively light influence and a light touch. And they had a kind of belief that the the team would be able to bring spirit to life in, in some way. I think it was maybe slightly hampered in a design sense by the fact that everything had to be done in incredible secrecy. So mm. it was the first time I can remember that we had locked doors and swipe cards and, and I completely understand that but I think the spirit of our studio is built on you know asking people as you walk by their desk do you think that looks great or <laughs> you know trying things and pinning them up on the wall and leaving them overnight and I think that was a different way of working and, and actually it was interesting to see how the guys became a really tight single unit and I haven't seen that in, in any other piece of work that we've done before or, or since. They became kind of almost a separate agency within <laughs> themselves. Um, it's weird when there is that, and maybe it's born out of all of the stuff in the press about the um, protectionism over the brand and whether or not other brands who aren't an official partner can even mention anything that's going on at the Olympics and all of that sort of lawyered-up activity. It's interesting that all the way at the origin of the mark, that sense of sort of legal fragility... Yeah. creates a quite a different way of approaching work. I think you just realise, and even from the moment that we were awarded the job, I think you realise just how how many people it impacts. You know, this is the biggest event on the planet. Um, it's going to hit a lot of eyeballs, and there's a lot of people wanting to make sure that what they think it should be appears 
when it's printed or when it appears on screen. And that's always going to be difficult. And I, you know, I'm looking across, we're having a conversation before you came in of some of the recent kind of branding controversies come from probably people wanting to have their version of the idea <laughs> put out in the world. And this comes with, you know, public consultation particularly as well so when we're talking about the Beijing Olympics there was apparently public consultation that happened in order to create that with the Leeds United identity that was recently kind of drawn back from the public initially there was public consultation as well and I'm intrigued as to how you can try answer a brief that's trying to make sure it makes everybody happy without making something that's bland I think that's the ultimate challenge of, of any of these briefs at big sporting events or things where people feel incredibly passionate is how do you make something for the mass without making it dull? I'd say the three big launches that we've done over the last few years, Airbnb, Premier League and Deliveroo, were all black and white. People either loved it or hated it. And the really big frustration is that as an industry, I don't think that we do a great job as an industry at educating people about mm. the difference between the logo and the brand. And so people are like, oh, I think that logo is just shit. I could have done a better logo. My kid could have done a better logo. The mm. Guardian's going to do, let's make a better logo competition. And what's frustrating is, is that actually through the process of that business saying, you know what, we're going to relook at our brand, they will have asked themselves some fundamental questions about their role in the universe, what they want people to think, how they can be better in lots of different ways. And all of that brain power and energy gets sort of reduced to the, like it should be a beautiful full stop, but it is just the full stop at the end of a really long story. And I think that that process becomes more and more apparent you know, the, the more prevalent the brand is, the more people will feel like you're, you're messing around with it. And then I think it's our duty as an industry to be good at explaining the role and the reason for that identity. So, you know, we went over the top potentially with Airbnb at really trying to explain it. At, that was actually quite a semiotic mark at, yeah. at the call. So we went over, over the top trying to explain the origin of that, what the different components meant and how you could interpret it to try to fill that void. With Premier League, we really tried to take pride in the fact that we were taking this thing that actually had a lot of equity, and there was a bit of science in terms of what people associated with the existing lockup when Barclays were a sponsor, and how could we start to use that story to try to allay fears that oh my goodness, like what are these people doing in a studio in Clerkenwell to our beloved brand, and how can we give them the confidence that actually we've not done it flippantly, mm. that we've done it through whether that's public consultation, whether that's through listening or imagining the way that the world is moving right now. Yeah, I think when a brand is particularly loved, you can use that. You can do the kind of judo role of using that as a really helpful thing to create something new. I always kind of worry when things have been created that lean so heavily on heritage, they get held back. Like heritage can be a really, really useful kind of marker to start from, but it shouldn't be kind of the end point it shouldn't take you to somewhere that you've kind of feel is overly familiar I think that we do need to hold ourselves to a really really high level of due diligence and account because any one of us messes up the entire industry takes a bit of a beating every time somebody delivers a brand that's really successful yeah, yeah of course there'll be people that hate it but if there's a really clear reason for that brand to exist mm. then I think we all benefit and I don't know whether it's quite what the right language to describe this is but People hark back to the nostalgic days, like the brilliant Mexican Olympics, mm. if we're thinking about the Olympics, 
where the kit of part, like the kit of parts had to be a certain way because media was a certain way, the way you interacted with brands mm. happened in a certain way. And so the format was kind of fixed, but the world is totally, totally different now. That's why I think the 2012 Olympics um, identity was so powerful because quite rightly, you couldn't see it until you saw it and then it made sense. The thing that's going on with some of the stuff that we're seeing in the upcoming Olympics are that it feels like people are designing an identity, probably looking back, and you can imagine what were on the mood boards back then and yeah. trying to create very graphic geometric forms. But that could be a bit of a wasted opportunity. Wouldn't Maybe the IOC could be a bit more... Because most of the media partnerships they're talking about are about 5G throughout all of the stadiums, about the ability to deliver VR content on the fly. Mm. So why are we all then looking at this static logo? Like, wouldn't it be better if actually there was no logo and you had to engage? You could only see something if you moved your phone really quickly. Yeah. Or There were different ways of unlocking how you engaged with the identity, especially since it's about movement, it's about sport. I think that's potentially something that... We, as an industry, need to be better at talking to, I can imagine negotiating with the IOC, is like trying to nudge the, <laughs> an oil tanker. Um, but I think that as an industry, progressive really? clients need to work with progressive agencies and vice versa, and you'll do great work. And, but that's kind of easy. Progressive agencies then also need to work with oil tanker clients and try to do progressive work. And, and I think that's the, the, the ongoing challenge now. We are a relatively small, big agency. We get into boardrooms and we get to meet C-suite clients. Over the last few years, I have sensed a slight feeling of conservatism and, and slightly protectionism, actually, of making sure that we don't challenge too hard, just in case people are upset or, or kind of feel pushed too far. And actually, it's our job to continue to push even harder, and but to do it in a way that feels like we're bringing people along. One of the things that always frustrates me whenever I think Wolf Islands is mentioned in a in a kind of critical sense is that we we behave or create things that look weird. <laughs> and and the ambition is never to create something that looks weird. It is to create something that feels different and feels relevant and feels feels radical in the space of today. And I think your point about an, an identity system that feels much broader is, is critical to that. So my favourite thing about the 2012 games was actually the typeface, which was weird. <laughs> but when you saw it on the track, you know, you could take a picture of that track and you'd instantly know without any logo exactly what year that race was being run. And that for me is at least like a really good symbol of how an identity can be much broader than just a logo type. I'm really not a big fan as well of, of things like you know the, the Mexico games. People hark back to um, Munich. They they hark back to at the time maybe they made sense, but even as a start point, I don't see them as particularly useful to be mm. able to create whatever the next thing is. And that's something that is a real ongoing challenge, I think. Yeah, there's always going to be like a nostalgic fetishism for the past, where we in design land pick up the posters, we buy the unit editions books that mm. sort of collate all of the drawings. There's something sort of, maybe it's because it's like the thinginess of things. It's like the time when people made stuff, you could see the mark of the maker and there's like an honesty to it. And I think in most design studios today, we tend to work it so quickly yeah. in a very abstract way. Sometimes, you know, we're delivering work sometimes where there isn't anything physical made you're de delivering a bit of code that will generate yeah. something and that thing will ultimately end up being called the brand and I think that that's probably why lots of designers it'll be really interesting actually to see how 
the next crop of designers, because we really get the interns that are coming into the studio today, feel like they are thinking about the role of design in a refreshingly new way, where it isn't, oh yeah, we know what the last 40, 50 years of good brand design looked like. Maybe it's just the interns that we're attracting, but they often come and they start to question, well, yeah, but does this business even need to exist? Or how about if all of these people engage with this business like that? Or what if this business like stopped having shareholders and they just gave everybody some sort of crypto share in the business and they all made the decisions for them? And because of that new way of thinking about the fundamentals, not of brand, but of the role of the business, the output ends up being refreshingly challenging. Yeah. And I think that also we're seeing um, clients, especially the big the oil tanker clients that are very difficult to move, are coming to agencies like ours, not just us, but certainly agencies like ours, and they're saying, oh, we love like the bold approach that you've used with X, Y, and Z. And, um, and it's interesting because sometimes they'll say, we really want to have the design studio approach. We love the way that you did with Deliveroo, but can we just keep it like this? Or can you yeah. not worry about that? And our job is to say, well, no, like, we're not just going to make a pretty thing. We're definitely going to have to talk to you about the some of the more fundamental and understand some of the more fundamental elements of the business so that we can do anything that's going to be relevant and of I, meaning. I, I think that's that's critical. I mean, Wolf Orleans is made up of a, lots of different types of people, and, and I think we've always aimed to make sure that we have a kind of broader church as possible when it comes to how we solve a, a branding problem. And that's always in quite a broad, holistic way. But the aim is always to make a better business. Mm. It's not to make a better identity. It's not to make a prettier company. It's to make a better business that hopefully will behave and talk in a way that feels different and fresh and kind of rewarding, actually. You feel like you can have a genuine conversation with the brand. One of the things we're kind of focusing on now is kind of how can we do that using lots of new pieces of technology that are becoming part of a designer's arsenal. So voice, for me, is going to be the thing that will change how you interact with brands full stop. Yeah. And I, I love the idea that we can create a whole brand just based around voice we might not even have a kind of physical or visual manifestation of it but just the idea that you can have a conversation with the brand and there's no reason why that couldn't happen and couldn't work for the olympic games or something huge and difficult in your oil tanker <laughs> group it's about making sure that you can have a really interesting valuable conversation and when you go speak to the brand tomorrow it will come back with something that's even more interesting and you want to continue that relationship with it. And that's something that's definitely changed. It's changed the type of people that we get in, into the studio. So you know, code is as standard now. You, you guys that are coming in, particularly the younger intern guys, fundamentally understand the different mechanics of how we now speak to each other. And that's something that I can only see continuing to progress as well. You're listening to Thought Starters, recorded at The Pod at White City Place. Today we're listening in on James Hurst, Principal of Design Studio, and Chris Moody, Chief Design Officer of Wolf Olin's London. Stay tuned for more conversation on copycats, Muddy Brands Speak, and Adbusters Magazine. Should we talk about plagiarism? I would love to talk about plagiarism. I'd love to talk about <laughs> <laughs> It's one of those things, it's such a kind of easy thing to throw 
isn't it? It's mm-hmm. such an easy topic to chuck at a brand or a design group. And it's almost like the lowest blow that you can give. <laughs> it's like the first thing when you look on the brand new website, when you look down below all those comments, is it looks a bit like this, which is like a harsher comment that you can possibly make. And, and I feel like we're hearing it a little bit more and more. And that's probably because people are just visually and verbally more aware of what's gone on before. It's often ill-founded as well. It feels like there is like a community of people that are obsessed with trying to unpick the like thisness yeah. of one thing versus another thing, to the extent that I think that we miss the entire conversation. Mm-hmm. We um, we've spoken at the brand new conference a few times, and we've suggested to Armin that what would be brilliant is if brand new it wasn't about that immediate knee jerk sort of write-up of whether or not the brand is of interest to him and aesthetically pleasing and of relevant to the wider world. Because all of that is like a very, very surface sort of assessment of what you can see. Something with those two logo comparisons that you always the before and after, as if that's kind of the ultimate aim. Yeah, and what it's missing is, you know, has the business fundamentally changed? Is the business going to play a totally different role? And none of that can be judged on day one. More often than not, the rollout, I mean, the work that we did with Logitech is taking years to roll out Mm. because it's so complicated to affect change at 100,000 plus organisations that the write-up on brand new is pointless because the write-up on brand new doesn't, or on any of those design blogs, what would be amazing, and we, you know, we've toyed with this idea a bunch of times, we should set up like a a year after the brand has been launched. That's probably where you can start to see the beginnings or the glimmer of whether or not the brand work has actually had a positive impact, is helping the business accelerate or amplify whatever its goals might be, and is being adopted for whatever the reasons that it's been designed to adopt. But it's very, very hard in this sort of, oh, it looks like this ism. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, if I look at the, the jobs that I'm currently working on, the both of them are two year plus, and those relationships will continue, I imagine, for another two years. And we're only just starting to see things out in the world, and it's very difficult to explain. It's actually it's actually quite difficult to explain to people who aren't even working on a project. Don't worry, we have considered those points. It'll just take time to to phase through. It'll take time for you to be able to see the whole I think often we're kind of we're designing almost like jigsaw pieces we know what's on the front of the box but it might take us kind of two or three years to get there and and you're right with the the kind of plagiarism point it's about instant gratification it's like have these guys made me think differently about this brand right now (laughs) it's going to be really really hard to increasingly it's going to be really really hard to do I think it's going to be something that we're going to find more and more of that it's going to take time for people to understand and grasp how the brand is going to coalesce together as something that you know feels unified, feels like one thing. Meanwhile, there will continue to be these conversations. Rebrands, full stop, are increasingly getting less popular. Yeah. So brands kind of make it out in the world like a gas. They kind of just escape from little bits and pieces and then eventually someone will kind of say, OK, it's out in the world, we can talk about it now. Um, and again, that makes it really difficult to kind of put a definitive point and say, OK, you can look at it now and get the full story. So uh, telling those stories over time is going to be really important. It's actually fascinating sometimes how you can find yourself in with a client who seems like a very seasoned, brand-led, mm. can speak a bit of brand lingo. Mm. And then a few months into the project, you realise that there's so much smoke and mirrors and people are very, very un 
sure about how to say I don't know or I, yeah. I don't understand that your role has to <laughs> suddenly turn into sort of yeah. teacher client therapist therapist <laughs> yeah and you go on a bit of a journey on a bit of a journey together but then also on our side you know we always encourage the team to not try to be the expert and you know one of the first things we say to clients is that we're going to come in and we are going to be really really dumb and we're going to stay dumb for as long as we can yeah. probably <laughs> until long after we've worked with you um, because that's the only way that we can ask honest questions we're not going to make assumptions that we know anything about your industry even though we I mean after the we rebranded Premier League we got approached by lots of other sporting institutions and we're now working with UEFA hmm. we've gone into every single conversation with UEFA ignoring everything we learned about Premier League because yeah. we know that it's you like it would just be a disservice to UEFA and all of that stuff that we learned for the Premier League was perfect for them and I think we've built a brand that's actually going to see you know really help them lift their ability to have a conversation about the role of sport within the communities that they operate that's a totally different conversation totally different set of challenges now for UEFA yeah yeah I I think one of the one of the things we find actually is also bringing in knowledge from other clients and industries is really vital now so we've done, you know, we've done a tremendous amount of work in in the telco space, but frankly, that's not necessarily the most interesting space to work in right now. But the knowledge and learning from that, and the way in which you take, for example, EE and Virgin or Sky have got into a, a price war and and a conversation about speed, for example, it's been played out in different places <laughs> and different industries. So whether that's you know the world of banking or the world of of retail, retail particularly, actually, it's kind of you look at how the department stores are kind of dying because they are trying to have that same speed conversation as Amazon, but we're never going to we're never going to win that. We can bring the knowledge and learnings from the different industries, and and help a new industry to solve a problem that they're only just starting to to face, um, and that ability to transfer that knowledge is is part of one of our jobs. And I agree as well. Naivety, I think, is is an incredibly powerful tool in a boardroom because nobody else uses it. Mm. Nobody wants to look weak in front of a, a C-suite client. If you work for them, if you're working with them like we do, it's a tool that we can use all the time. It's difficult because we often use words like vision. In fact, we use a bunch of words that have got really shitty definitions. Vision, yeah. brand, <laughs> proposition. And, um, uh, and it's quite mercurial how you then put any sort of like if anything, it's like putting water into a container and then putting the container into a freezer. Yeah. It can take so many different shapes. And, um, and I think we need to be better at having those containers yeah. <laughs> better articulated. For I, I, I agree. I, I think the, the, being able to change the language and change that vocabulary a little bit and make it a little bit more approachable and more easily understandable, I think is absolutely critical. I think it's always telling. So, you know, we're sat not a million miles away from the old BBC building and when I think of the way in which the creative industry is portrayed in W1A there's that horrible element of truth of, yeah. of some of those meetings and I've been in some of those meetings you know over years whether it's with clients or even internally where we've used language that just wasn't really necessary or moved a conversation on um, it was kind of because it was a type of language that we're just overly familiar with we just feel comfortable dropping it into a conversation I think changing that is is critical because you you know at the end of the day we're problem solvers and by putting up more kind of walls or confusion or smoke and mirrors it just makes it more difficult to solve that problem which is at the heart of what we should be doing yeah and I think that 
I mean, certainly the reason that I got into design in the first place was actually to solve problems. And I think the first big thing that set me on fire was the First Things First manifesto. Yeah. And I've been a constant subscriber to ad buses, <laughs> even though I work in the, in the industry that we work in. I think that the ability for people to work in the mental environment to understand and have a responsibility and mm. to use that responsibility as a force for good mm. is, is about making change. But yeah, I mean, you watch... I've certainly watched W1A and yeah. sort of slightly panicked that <laughs> there are cameras sometimes in conversations. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned ad busters. Like, because, you know, when I was coming up for university, it was, it was a constant reference. And I think it probably sums up that weird tension that as designers we all have, whereby we, we want to kind of go out and we want to change the world and we want to do things that kind of stick it to the man. But we also want to do what we do every day, which involves occasionally getting a suit on and go speaking to the man and making him feel good. And it, and it's that kind of weird tension that actually produce often produces some of the best work. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's a um, we do take the that positive sentiment is something that we do take into most of our well, in fact, all of our projects has an element of what is the impact going to be on the wider world and is it net positive or net negative? If it's net negative, how can we use the brand to um, to affect change and to make that change into something positive? I'm not saying that we do. You know, we're certainly not saints. But it's an interesting... And I think it's one of those weird things. The Even the language that we tend to use, we're shaping the strategic aims we often talk about these purpose-led organisations yeah. and then you immediately get into the bullshit conversation of this is a brand that's just saying stuff because they heard a Silicon Valley company saying stuff yeah. like that and they feel like they should do it. And our job is to say no, because there's no substance in any of this. If you want to say this, actually this is how you need to change yeah. and this is what that change looks like and you'll probably need to bring in XYZ expert to help you deliver on that change because you've been around for a long time and you're not doing any of this. So do you really want to do this? Yeah. And I think... Having the capabilities, the confidence, being, I don't know, probably being stable enough that if you lose a few clients because you have an honest conversation, yeah. it takes real guts. And I think that should almost be sort of part and parcel of every like serious brand agency should definitely be part of like our purpose in the world is to build better brands and mm. better takes lots of different shapes. People love it more because they believe in it more. Yeah. They believe in stuff that's good. Let's make sure that the, that the business is good. Be more open about how we continue to do that. I'd love us one day to have an event like the Venice Biennale where there's someone with enough sort of firepower and time probably to assemble the right group of people to have a really big conversation around that because I think that it's a conversation. The industry's changed so much, but it's sort of changing because almost because you bump into new things rather than because we're, there's like a serious acknowledgement of why it's changing and what that means and what the role and the responsibility is, not just today, but tomorrow. Maybe Wolf Arms and Design Studio should put it together. Should we do it? I think we should do it. I think we should make a commitment to do something. I think it's really important that actually more and more people are often seen in kind of... Uh, Combative, in in some sense, can collaborate and work together. I could see something like that having a big impact, actually. Well, let's do it. <laughs> that was James Hurst, Principal of Design Studio, and Chris Moody, Chief Design Officer of Wolf Olin's London. This has been Thought Starters, recorded at the pod at White City Place. Thought Starters is a Dianico project for White City Place, produced by David Michon, recorded by Antonio Fernandez, and edited by Claire Crofton. 
To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, find us at whitecityplace.com or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at White City Place. Or shoot us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com. And subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes. Give us a rating or write us a comment. It really helps. We'll see you next time. <laughs>